Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. Welcome. The Word of Hope sermon series is a ministry of Grace Family Church of Rhode Island. It was instituted to bring sound teachings from the Word of God to as many people as possible. Our purpose is to offer you a message that is both practical and contemporary, that brings the Word of God to light in a way that makes sense in daily life. As you listen to this message, it is our hope and prayer that the Lord will bless you through it and bring you hope, comfort, and guidance. And now, Pastor Kotze. It's not fair. It's not right. You should never have done that to me. Have you ever heard those words? That's evil. It's wrong. It hurts. I don't want it. I didn't ask for it. I didn't sign for it. I didn't do anything to deserve this. Sounds familiar? Imagine Joseph. I mean, do you realize his own brothers wanted to kill him out of jealousy? Is that right? Is that fair? Is that righteous? Did he deserve that? Well, his brothers probably would say, yeah, he does. But I don't think that Joseph would agree with that. Think about the fact that he was thrown in a pit for a little while, waiting to see what would happen to him. And then, of course, they decided to make money out of it and sold him as a slave. Does it sound fair? He gets into Egypt as a slave. He works really hard. He does a good job. He's promoted. And then he's framed by a woman who wanted to have relations with him. He's framed. She lies about him. And because of that, he's punished. Is that fair? Is that right? Do you think Joseph liked it? Then he helps two people in the prison. These two people promised that they would make his name known to Pharaoh. But they forget. Well, one of them dies. The other one goes back to serve Pharaoh, and he makes a promise. I, I will mention your case. I will plead your case with, with Pharaoh. But then he forgets about it. Can you imagine that? He forgets about it. And Joseph continues to languish in prison. Wow, talk about fairness. Is that right? What would you say in Joseph's place? Then finally, finally, it comes back to memory. Oh yeah, there is this guy in the prison that can help Pharaoh. Pharaoh calls him, Joseph helps him, and he's promoted to a super duper position. Second in the kingdom, second only to Pharaoh. Wow. I can imagine that might have crossed the mind of Joseph, maybe for a split, in, a split of a moment, a, a fleeting moment, that, wow, I got the power now. You know, I wonder what some of us would do with that kind of power after all that. Would the thought occur to us that maybe now I have the power to let them have it? Now I have the power to get even, to teach that Potiphar down in the, in the prisons a lesson because I have authority now? And then, the beautiful moment. Here come his brothers to beg for food. I mean, these are the same brothers that did all that, that caused all of that to happen to him. What an opportunity. How many of us would think, this is my opportunity to teach him a lesson? 
to let them have it, to let them, to let them feel what it feels like, what they've done to me, to do justice, as we would call it. But is it really justice? You know, Joseph told his brothers not to be afraid because things worked exactly the way God wanted them to. Oh, wait a minute. Hold a minute. You mean that God wanted me to go through all these trials? You mean that God would not want to give them retribution for all these bad things they did to me? God actually had a plan all through to preserve them, to save them, to help them, to guide them. Lots of questions. We find the answers in Luke. Very clear answers. Very clear answers. And the only way we, we can miss these answers is by closing our ears and not wanting to hear what Jesus says. In fact, it says, But I say to you who hear, it's almost like he came up to us and said, Hey, you disciples, I want you to listen to this. You better hear this. And what does he say? The unthinkable. Love your enemy. Now, by definition, an enemy is an individual who, or a person or a group of people, whatever, but the enemy is someone who's actively seeking to destroy you. Ooh, that doesn't sound too good, does it? It's not in kind of a lovey-dovey type of situation here. Oh, how nice you are, Mr. Enemy. No, it's not that. This is a, someone who is actively seeking to destroy us. And what does Jesus say? Love them. <laughs> So if you don't understand the meaning of the word love, then you have a problem here because you probably would be bound to think the way the world does. And how can I have these loving feelings toward the enemy who's out there seeking to destroy me? Well, see, that's, that's the worldly aspect of love. It's not what Jesus is talking about. Love in Scripture is defined by the very first verse that you memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You take that statement and you draw a definition of love and love becomes clear. Love is a giving of oneself for the benefit of a beloved in Christ. So if love is a giving of oneself for the benefit of a beloved in Christ and we apply that to this statement that Jesus made about the enemy, that means that we need to give of ourselves for the benefit of the enemy in Christ. Ooh, that's an interesting concept. First of all, as you will see in the rest of this passage, this is not emotional, this is actions. And we will see that clearly in just a moment. So Jesus is not talking about feeling nice and, and, and feeling tender and, and feeling affection for the enemy. Listen, if you are confronted by an enemy, chances are your feelings will be fear, anxiety, and a few other things. But are you gonna act on those things? Or are we going to act the way Jesus told us to, because Jesus is calling us to action. <clears throat> now, those actions will eventually affect our emotions as well. You act resentfully and you will be resentful. You start telling everybody all the bad things that this person or that person did to you, because they are the enemy. Those are the ones that are out there to destroy me. And you will be bitter, so deeply bitter that it will overwhelm you. And you will be in the grips of Satan who will thrive in that. Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Are there people out there hating you? Then do good to them. Because honestly, if you look at the context of what Jesus is teaching in here, if you don't, you'll be just like them. If you hate me and I hate you back, what's the difference? I remember that my mother taught me that lesson when I was a kid. I was the youngest. 
so everybody was capable of beating me, and they did. But my brother and I were only three years apart, and definitely three years at that age makes a big difference. And he would kind of definitely was able to overwhelm me, and yes, he would always win. But whenever my mother would catch us fighting, she would stop both of us, and I would complain. But mom, he started it. And she said, and what did you do? Well, I responded. So what's the difference? And I thought, oh, yes, if he beats you and you beat him back, what's the difference? Verse 28, Jesus says, bless, notice the action, bless those who curse you. Cursing us means speaking evil of. Someone speaks evil of us. Someone stains our reputation. Someone speaks bad things about us. Have you ever been there? I have. I know how much it stings. I know how much that hurts. Touch anything, but don't destroy my reputation, many people say. So they speak evil of us. What are we to do? Bless them. Speak good of them. Wait a minute. But if I speak good of them, how can I fix the problem? You see, we want to fix the problem, don't we? So-and-so gossiped about me and said something bad about me. Now I need to go out there and tell them they're liars, they're gossipers, they're saying things that are not true. I need to fix the problem. And then what? All right, they say something bad about us. So in order to fix the problem, we end up saying something bad about them. And I can almost hear Jesus with my mother's voice and say, so what's the difference? What have you done that is different from what they have done? Now it turns into a power struggle, you see, because now they say something about you, you say something about them, and now they're going to say something about you, and then you're going to say something about them, and then it turns into this power struggle, and the strongest usually wins. Or is it really winning? Because you get to the end, and what is the satisfaction? Now, let's say that we are successful for a sec, according to this world. Being successful means that we now ruined the other people's reputation so much that nobody believes them anymore because we proved that they said something false. And what a satisfaction that's going to be. Really? We did to them what they were trying to do to us. You know, the golden rule doesn't quite go that way. The golden rule doesn't say do to them what they're trying to do to you. But look at this statement here. Bless, speak good to those who curse you, to speak evil of you. Okay, someone's speaking evil of you, something's, someone's speaking evil of me, then you need to say something good about them. That's what Jesus' marching orders are. Now, you want him to be your Lord? Then he says, but I say to you who hear me. Is he your Lord? Is he my Lord? If he's our Lord, then we follow his orders, don't we? If he's our captain, we follow his instructions. The next one is, pray for those who mistreat you. And we have some amazing examples of that. The Chinese girl who was beaten in prison every day. His guard would come on duty and he would go to her cell and beat her up. And as she was done and was leaving the cell, he would hear her praying for him. So the next day he would go back and beat her up again and she would pray for him. And he would beat her up again, and she would pray for him. On and on and on he went. One day, finally, this guard couldn't take it anymore. So he told her, why are you so stubborn? Why do you continue to do that? Do you really want to know? Yeah. So she explained it to him. She shared the gospel with him. And he became part of the underground church in China. I don't know how many people were touched by him, but I'm, I'm sure he had quite a powerful witness to tell them, quite a powerful story. Pray for those who mistreat you. 
Verse 29, he says, whoever hits you on the cheek, now, if you compare that with Isaiah 50 and the context, that is, seems to be more of an insult type of thing, not necessarily if one strikes you. I think that this is mostly in reference to insults, the famous gauntlet, the challenge. Here, you're challenged, right? Well, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. If they're insulting you, don't react to the insult. If they want to continue insulting you, so what? That's their problem, not your problem, not my problem. Been there, done that. Responding to insults made it worse. It's another lesson that I learned when I was a little boy. I was being picked in school, and God bless her, my mother came to the rescue again. And she helped me to understand that if I were to respond to the insult, I would give them the satisfaction. I would give them the satisfaction of knowing that I was insulted. So she said, listen, if you are not insulted, they will get tired. They will go and pick on somebody else who responds, who reacts, and it gives them the satisfaction of a reaction. And at first I didn't understand it, but eventually I got it. I actually use that lesson today with some people who are easy to be offended by going in front of them and say, okay, I'll tell you what, you got five minutes and I give you permission, carte blanche, I give you permission to do whatever you want, to say whatever you want, please offend me. I haven't seen one yet that was able to offend me. Some backed off and said, I can't do that. Okay. Some actually tried, but they did not succeed. You know why? You know what the secret is? For someone to offend you, you need to make the choice to be offended. And obviously, I know they're going to try, and I choose not to be offended. But the point is made, though. You cannot be offended unless you want to be. You can choose not to be offended. So you can tell me I'm a piece of dirt. And I say, sure, absolutely. This much. When everything is said and done about me, this, is, this much dust left on me. Right? So what? You tell me I'm good for nothing. You're right. Everything I can accomplish is good for nothing. But the Lord in me is good for everything. It's not about me anyway. It's all about him. So Jesus said, don't bother. Don't respond to insult with insult. Don't respond to, to, to evil with evil, but rather respond to evil with good. Wow, what a lesson. By the way, notice in verse 22 earlier, it says, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you. Notice that this, here's the insult. And scorn your name as evil for the sake of a son of man. So let's take away one scenario. Someone telling me that I'm a criminal because I am a criminal, okay? If I commit a crime and someone tells me I'm a criminal, that's not an insult. That's a statement of fact, okay? But if I'm a Christian and they say I'm a criminal because I'm a Christian, that's a different story. If you're doing something right and somebody says something evil about you because you did something right and they didn't like it, maybe then they're insulting you for the sake of the Son of Man. If that case, leave it in God's hands. Absolutely, don't worry about it because God is making, taking notice of that. Then it says, whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Now, there's a little cultural thing to understand in that statement because taking away your coat actually was something pretty bad back in, back in those days. You know, the outer garment is what you wrap yourself up to stay warm. It was actually immune or exempt, I should say, from any lawsuit because essential for life. In case you ended up in a lawsuit because you owe something to somebody else, they could take you the undergarment, meaning the tunic, but they could not take the overgarment, the one that you protect yourself with, the one you warm yourself up with because it's essential for your life. So that was a, exempt from lawsuits. You cannot claim that. 
But someone here is, is, is doing something illegal and someone is doing something treacherous. He's taking away the outer garment, the one that you use to protect yourself and keep yourself warm. And Jesus says, well, give me your tunic as well. Now, it's not a statement where we're told to be naive. You look at it in context and he's talking about not recriminating, not paying back evil with evil. Verse 30, give to everyone who asks of you and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. While that could be understood as an overstatement, I think the principle is clear. Now, sometimes giving to someone who asks us may not be good for them. My grandson has the habit of asking for more chocolate. Too much chocolate, not good for him. So sometimes, guess what? I say no. And sometimes he says, okay. He's growing up a little bit, so now he's capable of saying okay a little more. Some other times he says, but don't, you don't like me. And I say, I care about you. Well, I don't like you. You're not my friend anymore. I don't need to be your friend. <laughs> and you, I don't need to be liked by you. I just need to be listened to. <laughs> anyway, sometimes love makes you not give something to someone that is detrimental for them, that is harmful for them. So that can be understood as an overstatement, but the point is made. Don't withhold. Don't fight it. Someone wants something from you or someone needs something from you. Go ahead. But when you give it, don't don't go and demand it back. Verse 31, I think it makes it all clear. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. All right. Remember before I said the, the golden rule goes one way and not the other way? It doesn't say treat the others the way they treated you. So you offended me? Well, I offend you. You said something bad about me? I'm going to say something bad about you. Now we are even. Or now we even out the score. Or we... No, we never say, because we're righteous, right? So we never say we even out the score. We say, now we make the truth clear. Wow, that sounds so much more righteous, doesn't it? So if you don't like them to speak evil of you, if I don't like you to speak evil of me, what gives me the right to speak evil of you? Jesus doesn't say treat them the way they treated you. Jesus say treat them the way you would want them to treat you. So I would want you to speak the truth about me, to be nice and kind. So I would need to be nice and kind with you and speak the truth about you. Scripture tells us speak the truth in love and speak according to the need of the moment. Sometimes the truth is not the need of the moment, okay? So then what do you do? You take the truth that is needed at the moment. Let me, let me illustrate it with an example I've used before and so probably is familiar to you because you heard me saying that before. In the early days of our marriage, I found myself praying for her. They said, okay, what's, what's so strange about praying for your wife? Nothing, no. But the way I was praying for her was kind of interesting because I was praying that, you know, with that righteous attitude, I was praying that God would help her to overcome problem. A, problem B, problem C, problem D, problem E, problem F. And she says, stop, I'll go down the whole alphabet, okay? You see, in, in my self-righteousness, I was asking God to help her overcome all sorts of different things that I saw in her. And my love for her grew cold. And I know I did not make it easy for her either. Then, as I usually say, and you heard me saying that before, the two by four from God came, wham, because... A scripture confronted me. Love your wife as even Christ loved the church, etc., etc., etc. But I look at how Christ loves the church, and I see that Christ presents the church to himself as spotless, pure, immaculate, in all her glory, without wrinkle or stain. Ooh, that really hit me. I am presenting my wife to God with a whole bunch of stains and wrinkles. 
So I prayed again, and I said, God, how can I do that? Because the things that I saw in her were not false. They were there. They were true. So here comes the second two by four, and that's a statement from Revelation, that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And it dawned on me that I was doing Satan's work by presenting myself. Have you ever seen it in Job chapter 1 and 2? Satan presenting himself to God and accusing someone and bringing up all the problems and defects and faults. And I was thinking, whoa, wait a minute. I'm doing the same thing. And of course, in a moment, the self-righteousness creeped up against it. But I'm saying the truth. Finally, I resolved the matter by the grace of God. I think God handled those two by fours pretty well. Eventually, the solution came to me, and, and I understood one thing. I don't have to look at those things, because God is at work in her. And as God is at work in her, God is taking the time that is necessary to work in her. And if he has chosen not to address those matters yet, am I saying to God, God, you're wrong, you should have addressed these matters already? Or should I trust God that God will eventually address those as well in his time, in his way? So what can I look at then? I can look at the work that God has already done in her. I can look at the qualities and the gifts and the characteristics that God has built up in her at the work that God has done in her and appreciate that. And I don't know, I mean, I say, yeah, for, for crying out loud, isn't that why I chose to marry her? Because I saw what God was doing in her and loved it. Now, this is love in the sense of, you know, like it a lot. Yeah, so I started doing that. And it, it, I realized that that is a way of treating others the way you would want them to treat you. I would not want my wife to go and pray to God with all bunch of problems and defects and faults that she sees in me, and there were plenty of them. I would prefer for my wife to go to God and thank God for the, the gifts that God has given me, for the work that God has already done in me. And maybe with a little bit of expectation and anticipation for the rest of the work. But you know what? As I started doing that, my love for her grew strong, and it's still growing strong. And I learned to appreciate so much in what God has done in her and through her that is absolutely amazing. And I'm not tired of it at all. 37 years later, still going strong. 37 years later, I still feel like, man, I'm going to marry this woman. I have to propose to this woman, right? And the patience that God has given her, oftentimes I go to her and say, I thank God for you so much because you I'm probably the only person I've ever met in my life that could put up with me as much as you do. Then Jesus continues and says, If you love those who love you, what good is that? What credit is that to you? What good is it? Sinners do the same. We enjoy fellowship with those who think like us, who believe like us, who like the same things that we like, who share the same interests as we share because they make us feel good. If you love those who love you, what good is that? Now, it doesn't mean that it is wrong to love a brother or a sister who loves you. It, is, it doesn't mean that it's wrong for me to love my wife because she loves me. But if I only love those who love me, what good is that? The sinners do the same thing. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? What good is that? It's still motivated by self-interest. Do you see the problem? It's not really love. Love is defined as a giving of oneself for the benefit of a beloved in Christ. So then, here's the problem. If I, quote-unquote, love in order to be loved, what's my real motive? Not to give of myself, but to take from you the benefit of your love. If you do good to those who do good to you, well then the motive 
is to receive that good. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And again, the motive is self-centered and selfish. Verse 35, here we go again. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Now you see the reason, the motive that we should have in our hearts. Here's what it is. God is a giver. God is gracious. God is merciful. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. You want to be like God? Then be kind to ungrateful and evil men. Let good overcome evil. Don't answer to evil with more evil. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Again, the motive is to be like God. The motive is to express the very nature of God that God has shared with us. The motive is to grow in Him, to express the love that God has poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5.5. It says, do not judge, and you will not be judged. Ooh, wait a minute. The implication of that is that if I judge, then I'm under judgment too. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. But forgive, and you will be forgiven. I think it is clear by now, right? Give, and it will be given to you. It will be poured into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Don't they expect the people that are saying evil things about you because now you, you were nice with them, all of a sudden they turn around and they start saying nice things to you, okay? Because that may happen, and if it does, praise God, but don't expect it. Remember the previous passage and the previous statement. It says, give, not to be receiving, give. Early it says, land without expecting anything back. See, love your enemies, do good, and land, in verse 35, expecting nothing in return. Now, that is a key statement in here in this context. So, what verse 38 says is not to do that, to give in order to expect something in return, because then it violates the whole concept that, that Jesus has been speaking about. The fact is, in this statement, is that as you give, as you are like your Father in heaven, who is a giver, he will continue to give to you. And elsewhere in scriptures it's written that if you give, God will give you even more so you can continue to give and give even more. And sometimes that giving can be sacrificial. I find myself in positions sometimes where I said, God, I, I know you want me to give this, but man, if I give this, then what am I going to do? And it's almost like God was kicking me on the side and saying, come on, you think that little of me? <laughs> And when, by the grace of God, I decided to give it anyway, and all those worries I had, what, what, what about me? What am I going to do? Turned out to be unfounded. Here I am. I'm still alive. I'm okay. Next time I check, in fact, I put on some weight instead of losing it. So I'm okay. All right? God provided, right? God is gracious. And God is merciful. And he will take care of you. But let him take care of you. And look at the last statement for today. For by your standard of measure... It will be measured to you in return. Someone has done something wrong to me, and I respond in the same way. That's a standard of measure. All right, let's get this picture, brothers and sisters. Let's get this scripture, because if we give back what they give to us, it's almost like going to God and say, God, give me what I deserve. I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, don't do that. Don't ask God to give you what you deserve because you know what you deserve, right? Romans 6.23 says it. Death is all you deserve. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. 
So if my standard or measure is to return evil for evil, how much should God return to me? I would be in trouble. But you see, God has been merciful with me. God has been first merciful with you. And he was merciful even when we didn't care about it. So doesn't that call for us to be merciful with others? Let your standard of measure be godly. Let your standard of measure be God's measure. A measure of grace, a measure of mercy, a measure of forgiveness, because that will be measured to you in return. May God bless you and keep you. Amen.